Okay, friends, and the story begins. We are on page 18, the middle of the page. We are continuing the section of the preliminary part of davening that goes through the korbanot, that goes through the sacrificial offerings. Last week, we spoke about the very first step in bringing an offering, which was clearing off the ashes, taking out the garbage. We spoke about the spiritual and um, homiletic significance of that. Again, the whole, the whole phenomena of davening was uh, a replacement for korbanot, for sacrifices, which we can no longer partake in, given that we don't have the base of mikdash. Davening replaces that. Prior to davening, we're going to recite the verses of the korbanot from the Torah. Today's section of korbanot, page 18, bottom half of the page, talks about the korban tamid, the tamid offering. It talks about the wine libations, and we're going to talk about what this represents practically in our lives on a, on a more spiritual level, from a more spiritual significance. We first start with a little prayer, which is actually omitted on days that tachnun is not said, because it's one of those supplication prayers that have a uh, mourning connotation to it. Uh, middle of the page 18, do you see it? May it be, or we'll read through it quickly. May it be your will, Lord our God, God of our fathers, to have mercy on us and forgive all our sins, atone for us all our iniquities, and forgive and pardon all of our transgressions. May the Beit Hamikdash, the Holy Temple, be rebuilt speedily in our days, that we may offer before you the daily burnt offering to atone for us, as you prescribe for us in your Torah through Moses, your servant in your glorious name, as it is said, and then we quote the following paragraph, which we'll get to soon. But we start off with a supplication prayer. May it be your will that we can have this Beit HaMikdash so we can atone for our sins. The Beit HaMikdash was destroyed because of our sins. The first Beit HaMikdash was destroyed because Jews were engaged in idol worship, so God allowed the Babylonians to destroy it. The second Beit HaMikdash was destroyed because Jews were engaged in... Um, essentially hateful behavior. Um, they, they had what's called sinat chinam, hatred toward one another. They weren't getting along. God allowed the Romans to destroy the Beit HaMikdash. And we're asking God, we can't bring any korbanot anymore. We can't bring any offerings. We have to bring a, uh, we can daven, we can pray, we can, the word korban, by the way, offering, comes from the Hebrew word karov, to come close. We can come close through prayer, but we can't come close as we once were able to in your holy temple. So here's the story. In the 18th century in Mezhibuz, anybody heard of Mezhibuz? Mezhibuz was, uh, I guess now it's technically Ukraine. It might have been Russia back then. I'm not very good with geography, but these things would change like the weather would. <laughs> it was like a California weather. No. Mezhibuz is where the Bashemta was from. And just a generation later, the 18th century, late 18th century, there was a rabbi named the Apter Rav. He was the Rav of Apt, who at some point uh, lived in Mezhibuz. He was a Hasidic leader. His name was Rabbi Yeshua Heschel. And he had a student who was going through a particularly difficult time. Now, 
I, I, before I say this story, this isn't the approach. This, the, the response the rabbi gave this individual when he lamented about how difficult of a time he was going through, this isn't necessarily the response we should be giving people, but it is certainly a response we need to be giving ourselves. Let's bear that in mind. So he starts lamenting about how uh, difficult of a time he's going through. And the rabbi says, did you hear about the big calamity that happened in the Jewish world? He says, no, I didn't. I can miss the news and I missed the WhatsApp text. <laughs> he didn't hear about, I didn't hear about the big calamity. What happened? He says the Beit HaMikdash was not rebuilt. Okay. <laughs> he says, what do you mean, okay? The Beit HaMikdash wasn't rebuilt. We couldn't bring an offering. The Talmud says that any generation where you didn't see the rebuilt, Beit HaMikdash being rebuilt, which is so far, up until thus far, every generation, it's as if you saw it being destroyed. You didn't see the Beit HaMikdash being rebuilt. What do you mean? You can't bring a korban today. You can't bring a sacrificial offering. It's inhibiting our ability to fully come close to God the way we once did. You're worried about these third world, uh, first world problems that you have. I don't know exactly what the issue is. I'm assuming the issue wasn't too serious. You're worried about your first world issues. <laughs> There's bigger fish to fry. <laughs> Again, the, the whole trajectory of the Torah, starting from the way beginning when God encountered Abraham and promised the land of Israel to his people, the whole Torah is leading up to us going to Israel, having a Beit HaMikdash, us being able to serve God permanently, us having a permanent home for God. And that's why Judaism really centered around the Beit HaMikdash. The Beit HaMikdash has now been destroyed. And now it's like, and now what? <laughs> so we pray to God before reciting the Korbanot, before learning about this offering, we pray that we once again, we'll be able to implement this offering and actually perform it. Let's read what this offering entailed in detail. We're going to read the text. Then we're going to discuss its significance in our personal lives, even though we're not going to be slaughtering animals on a daily basis um, personally. <laughs> okay, you with me? Okay, it's the third paragraph, last paragraph of the page, page 18. We'll quickly read through it. This is an excerpt from the Torah portion of Pinchas. It's in the book of Numbers. We actually read this on Rosh Chodesh as well. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the children of Israel, say to them, my offering, my food offering consumed by fire, a pleasing odor to me, a scent to me. You shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. God tells Moses, tell the children of Aaron, the Kohanim, to bring my offering at the right time. You shall say to them, this is the fire offering, which you shall offer to the Lord. Two yearly male lambs without a blemish every day as a daily burnt offering. You shall offer one lamb in the morning and the other lamb toward the evening. This is what we referred to as the korban tamid, the consistent offering. And a tenth of an ephah of fine flour, that's a measurement of flour, with a fourth of a hin of oil of crushed olives as a meal offering. So there was a sacrificial animal offering once in the morning, once in the afternoon. There was some sort of meal offering. They would make some sort of wafer matzah. This daily burnt offering as it was made at Mount Sinai for a pleasing odor. A fire offering to the Lord. And then finally, and it's wine offering. That's the libation. So it'll be a fourth of a hin for one lamb. In the sanctuary, you shall pour out a wine offering of a strong wine to the Lord. You shall pour 
sorry, and third to last line, and you shall offer the other lamp toward the evening with the same meal offering and the same water for offering in the morning to be a fire offering, pleasing odor to the Lord. So to recap, <laughs> you had various offerings in the temple for various occasions. But there was, right, for Rosh Chodesh, there was a specific offering that was brought unique to Rosh Chodesh. That's called the Musaf. You know what the word Musaf means? Musaf means... Does it mean the end? No. It doesn't mean the end, but that's a good guess, actually. Because actually, <laughs> from the word self, yeah, the word addition. The word self could mean end, but it also, so that's a good guess. But, but um, self also means addition. It's an additional offering. On Rosh Chodesh, there was an additional offering that wouldn't be brought other days. These days, we have an additional prayer that wouldn't be recited on a regular day, right? So that's called the Musaf. On Shabbos, there was a special Shabbos Musaf. On Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, right? There was a special offering for the day. But then there was an offering that was brought every single day, day in, day out. That was called the Korban Tamid, the constant offering. There was a Tamid in the morning. There was a Tamid in the afternoon. These days we have Shachrit, the morning prayer, to replace that. We have Mincha, the afternoon prayer, to replace that. No After question. Yes. We're uh, like... Okay, so so there was the uh, the lamb offering, the uh, meal offering, the wine offering. Um, did these take place concurrently at uh, specific times of the day, or were they kind of spread out? Good question. Um, do you mean the wine offering and the meal offering together with the took took place right after the sacrifice? Okay, so it's basically back to back. It's not like yeah. you know, early morning and then late morning. Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay. No, no, they, they were pretty much back to back. The the morning offering was basically the first part of the morning. Um, and then after midday, you could do the afternoon offering. Or I mean, depending on what on the schedule. But look, there were days where let's say it was Shabbos and it was Erev Pesach. So you have to do the Korban Tamid, the consistent offering. You have to do the Shabbos Mosaf. You have to do the Passover offering. It's like a really busy day. So there was days where it's like, wow, you got to be really efficient. Yom Kippur was probably the biggest, busiest day. We read about the whole Avodah, the whole service that took place on Yom Kippur. There's a lot going on in addition to the regular responsibilities that took place. So was it the, the Korban Tamid that was... Um... Uh, offered as someone's summary of how to summarize Judaism? Yes, yes. Okay. So there's a there's a fascinating Midrash. It sounds like you're familiar with this Midrash. It's one of my favorite Midrashim. It's actually a mysterious Midrash. I'll tell you why. If you look in a Midrash book, you won't find it. <laughs> it, it it's bizarre. So how do we know about it? So there are two places in classical texts where it's quoted. This is just some background information, just for fun. So it's parenthetical. You have the Maharal of Prague. We're familiar with the Maharal of Prague, Rabbi Yudalau of Prague. He was the chief rabbi of Prague in the 15th or 16th century. He quotes this Midrash. So we only, apparently he had a text of Midrash that nobody else had that he quotes. But if you were to actually look in the Midrash, you wouldn't find it there. 
You have the same Midrash quoted by Rabbi Yaakov Ibn Chaviv, who is more of a, not in the European side of Judaism, but the Samaritan side of Judaism, more in the Arabic lands of Judaism, in the uh, probably 11th or 12th century. So he's even uh, predates the Maharal, Rabbi Yudalau of Prague. He quotes it in the introduction of his book, the En Yaakov. Anybody heard of En Yaakov? En Yaakov is basically uh, a cut and paste of all the stories of the Talmud. The Talmud has a lot of law, discussion. It also has anecdotes in the story. So Rabbi Ibn Yaakov Ibn Chaviv compiled all of the stories of the Talmud, basically cut and paste. So if you just like the stories, it's a, it's a good book. So in his introduction, he quotes this Midrash. There were three rabbis that were having a debate. Which verse in Judaism encapsulates the whole of what Judaism is all about? Rabbi number one says, and I forgot their names, so I apologize. Rabbi number one says it's the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That's the essence of Judaism, one God. It was the whole religion founded by Abraham was founded on his monotheistic beliefs. The Shema is the first thing we teach our children. It's the last thing a person says on their deathbed. Next rabbi says, no, no, no. It's love your fellow as yourself. That's the essence of Judaism. We know that Hillel said this is the whole Torah. The rest is, the rest is commentary. Go study. Rabbi number three quotes a verse from the, the a sentence from the paragraph we just read from the book of Numbers. Um, we'll read it right over here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven lines from the top, bottom paragraph, but seven lines down. You shall offer one lamb in the morning, the other lamb toward the evening. <laughs> and ironically, all of the rabbis agreed with this third opinion, which is bizarre. It seems random. That's That encapsulates Judaism, and indeed it does. Because it's the korban tamid, it's the consistent offering. It doesn't matter if it was Yom Kippur. doesn't matter if it was a regular Tuesday, if it was Shabbos, if it was Pesach. Every single day, morning and evening, this offering was brought. Consistency. One of the reasons why we recite this is to remind us of the value of consistency. Day in, day out. Consistency is seen not only as a, a positive virtue in Judaism, but it's actually seen as a godly virtue because it it, it it resembles God, it reflects God. The only true stable entity is God. Everything else fluctuates. The only thing that always was, is, and will be, like we say in the Adon Olam, and he was, he is, he will be. The only true us is and will be, which is emet, the only truth that is unwavering is God. Everything else fluctuates, changes, at some point didn't exist, at some point could or will cease to exist, but it's God who is always there. And when we reflect that trait in our service, we're being godly. That's the soul. The soul is what enables us to be consistent day in, day out, to pray consistently day in, day out. <clears throat> in 1984, in one of his talks, the Rebbe was also for bringing and talking about the significance of this Korban Tamid, 
And there's another message here besides that of consistency. When do you need to be consistent? Always. Not only in the morning. Not only do you need to bring an offering. Again, an offering is the homiletic idea of coming close to God. The word korban means karov. You need to approach and come close to God not only in the morning, when the sun is out, when you have spiritual revelation. That's what morning essentially represents. When you have the daytime, when you're spiritually comfortable, when you're on a high spiritually, when you have clarity. So, of course, I'm going to come close to God. It's Yom Kippur, I'm inspired. Of course, I'm going to come close to God. Or I just had an amazing Shavuos. Of course, I'm going to come close to God. But what about the evening? The evening korban. There's times where it's evening, where it's dark, where I'm lacking inspiration or revelation. Then, too, I need to come close to God because I need to be consistent. The difference is I'm going to have to initiate this relationship. There's times where I'm going to have revelation. That's the morning offering. And I'll be able to respond to that revelation, to that experience. I'll be able to build, I can experience God. So, of course, I'm going to pray. And then there's that random Tuesday where it's like, I feel like I'm just dragging along here. But we got to do it because it's a part of who we are. And by the way, this, the, the Shema follows the same theme. The mitzvah is to recite the Shema once in the morning, once in the evening. And that's that same idea. Recognizing God is one which again, we said God is one means that God is relevant. That's what essentially God is one means, that he is a relevant God. That is necessary in the morning when I'm inspired. Okay, I'll recognize that there's one God. But even in, in the evening when it's dark outside, when I'm lacking clarity, that consistency means that the relationship is not just dependent on how I feel, but it's dependent on the truth. If I can be consistent when I'm inspired, and even when I'm not inspired, so now the relationship's not about me, it's about the relationship. In Maimonides' uh, compendium, Code of Jewish Law, he, he talks about literally the whole gamut of Judaism, covers everything, and he talks about loving God. The mitzvah to love God, the mitzvah to serve God. And here's what he says. If he says, if you serve God for a reward, that's serving God out of fear. We call that FOMO. You know what FOMO is? Fear of missing out. Right? Fear of missing out. If I serve God for reward, that's FOMO. It's fear of missing out. It's out of fear. If I serve God because I want the feeling of love, inspiration, I want that vibe, it's a beautiful thing <laughs> to feel connected, feel connected to our people, feel connected to Judaism. But at the end of the day, it's FOMO. He says, serve God out of love, which means that the truth is true because it's true. Not just because I believe it <laughs> or because I happen to feel it. The truth is true because it's true. And if I serve God because he is true, 
and I believe that truth is true because it's true, not just because I feel it, then even in the evening, I can be consistent. I can serve God, even when I'm not feeling it. Okay. Now that we've brought this offering in the morning, even when I'm inspired, in the evening when it's dark outside, even when I'm not inspired, what comes after the offering? There's the bread offering and there's the libation, which basically means the pouring of the wine. There's a great 3D, I forgot what it's called, but there's a 3D tour that you could take of the Beit HaMikdash that they made. I really, I forgot what it's called, but I highly recommend it. You get a real sense of what Judaism was like, where the menorah was, where the Mizbeach, the altar was. On the Mizbeach and the altar, there were these special drain pipes for the libations, for the pourings. And they would pour the wine down into the drains. That was part of the service. But there was deep significance here. Again, the korban, the actual animal sacrifice, mean, represents coming close to God. And coming close to God with your animal. You're taking your animal and you're bringing it on the altar of God, and it's going to be consumed by the fire, which represents your animal soul coming and being consumed by the fire of the divine soul. You're going up to God, but you got to come back down. That's the pouring of the wine. As spiritual as you are, where, did, where does God want your soul to be? Down here. God wants the soul to be active. Not just to be absorbed in spirituality. In a couple of weeks from now, we're going to read in the Torah about the spies that Moses sent. Did we, I think we discussed this last week also, right? Um, we're going to read about the spies that Moses sent to Israel. They came back with a negative report, slandering the land. It made Moses upset, made God upset, getting in way in the way of the whole trajectory of what of why God took them out of Egypt. Why were they so anti-Israel? Why were they so anti-Zionist? I'm kidding, but why were they so uh because they wanted the spirituality that they had in the desert, the clouds of glory, the well of Miriam, being able to just study Torah. We're going to get to Israel. We're going to have to start tithing and working the land and, and you know, get our boots on the ground, roll our sleeves up. But that's the point. The point is to have a physical impact on the world. The point is that you can go to work. Now you can tithe. You can't tithe if you don't make money. <laughs> the point is you can go to work and you could be honest in business. You can't do that if you don't have a job. If you're just in your, if we're just in our cocoon all day. When Mashiach comes, we're going to have Shabbos the entire time. <laughs> The whole time will be like Shabbos, Yom Shukolo, Shabbat, a day that is it's going to be like one long. But right now we have Shabbos once a week. We, there's times where we need to recharge, connect spiritually, have our korban, our sacrifice, connect on a high while we're praying. Afterwards, you got to do the libations. You got to come back down. Got to come back down to earth. Because God doesn't just want us to leave reality so we can experience him. In other words, it's, it's, it's not sufficient to stop the body from obstructing the soul. The soul has to express itself in the body. 
Your body has to see the soul as relevant. It has to, Judaism has to be relevant to our animal soul. Right, right there's, a, there's a mitzvah in the Torah to feed your animal prior to feeding yourself. Right, that's, that's the ethical thing to do. Your animal can't necessarily fend for itself. Before feeding yourself, feed your animal. But spiritually, what that means is you got to feed your animal soul first. Spirituality has to speak to your animal soul, not just the divine soul. So the, which means in English, my self-oriented self, part, part of me, the part of me that drives me towards self-interest has to care about Judaism because it's good for me. My animal soul just, just enjoys Judaism like it enjoys Diet Coke. It's just a part of who I am. It's relevant to me. That's the why in libation. I'm coming down back to earth. Back here. Okay. Then the couple last lines of the prayer. Top of page 19. This goes back to what we were just saying. He shall slaughter it on the north side of the altar before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the Kwanim, shall sprinkle its blood all around the altar. So you take the animal, the lamb, slaughtered in the morning, slaughtered in the afternoon, afterwards there's the libations. Afterwards, you take that blood and you sprinkle it on the altar. What does blood represent? Life. Life. Vitality, energy. But which life? It's the animal soul's life. Right? It's my regular human life. My, my, my drive, my animal drive is represented by blood. That blood is sprinkled on the altar. Because it's not sufficient to suppress our animal soul. Although that is what's necessary sometimes. Right? Got to slaughter the animal soul. But it's not enough just to suppress it. It has to be rerouted. Got to ride that animal. Sprinkle it on the altar. Let that life power something sacred. Let that passion power something sacred. There was a young fellow who I was speaking with a couple of weeks ago. And um, he's, been, he's grown tremendously in his Judaism the past couple of years studying and, and really you know he went away to shiva and he was talking about how he really loves writing so i said you can't give that up use your talent for writing to make torah accessible to jot down ideas and share ideas in a way that other people wouldn't be able to because of how talented you are adapting ideas don't you know you don't don't stunt your personality so you can spiritually just so you could spiritually grow let your spiritual self express itself in your personality become a part of your personality like um i'll tell you a quick story just just to bring this idea home just to develop this idea you know rabbi manis friedman 
he ran a girls school for young ladies who didn't have uh, a Jewish education growing up and wanted to study about their Judaism. There was one particular girl who really got inspired and started keeping kosher and started shop the whole the you know the whole shebang the whole Megillah. When she was young, she was you know probably maybe a late teenager, tw early twenties, and classic. The mother was upset. <laughs> she calls Rabbi Friedman and says, "What did you do to my daughter?" She says, "What are you talking about? I didn't do anything." She said, "Yeah, you did something. She's not eating in my house now, <laughs> and she's doing Shabbos and she's doing all these things." What would you? He said, "I didn't tell her to do anything. She learned about who she was." He says, "Who who gave birth to her?" She said, "I did." <laughs> Aren't you Jewish? Yeah. Okay, so you did it. I didn't do it. <laughs> what do you want from me? You're Jewish. You gave birth for her. She's just being herself. But Rabbi, so Rabbi Friedman was talking about this. Manus Friedman. He said, "But." If the mother complained, not that she's keeping Shabbos that, or that she's eating kosher and I can't get my... If she complained, my daughter has no more sense of humor. Right? Or, you know, or whatever her personality was. She's right. That's a problem. That's a problem. Because we're not here to shut down the body just to experience the soul. The body has to experience the soul. Does it make sense? It has to be something that the body appreciates, that the animal soul appreciates, becomes part of who we are, not at the expense of who we are. And that's the dynamic of coming close to God through the sacrifice, and it's constant in the morning and the evening, but then coming back down to earth, making it relevant down to earth by pouring the libations, coming down. Okay, that's my story and I'm sticking to it.